How's it going, everyone? So before we dive into the episode, I really want to say thank you to everyone that is listening in, that's tuning in, that's enjoying this content and getting value from it. I really love that. That's why I do it. Um, But there's a huge amount of you that are listening, that are not subscribed, not following the podcast. And I really want to encourage you to please follow and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening or viewing this on. Um, it really helps out the podcast. It helps out the algorithm. It helps more people hear this content that you already find helpful and that they hopefully will as well. So if you go ahead and subscribe or follow the podcast on, on any platform that you're listening on and please share it with your friends, that'll be great. All right. Thanks everyone. Let's get into the episode. How's it going everyone? Security unfiltered episode 23. Today, I am talking with Alex from Turgensec. He is a director over at Turgensec, and we talk about just about everything other than Turgensec. And so, you know what that means. We're going to have to have him back to talk about what Turgensec does. We do touch on it a little bit in this episode, but we really talk about different common issues and areas that every professional in security runs into that they have to learn to overcome to get better and excel in this field. So come along and join us in this journey of an episode. Uh, Hope that you guys really enjoy it. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please leave a review on whatever platform you are enjoying my podcast on. Thanks, guys. Hope Hope you enjoy it. Have a good week. So you were talking about ransomware and how it impacts uh, the yeah. industry. So I found that ransomware has been a benefit to the security industry, not not in a way that it's meant to drive people buying more security products or anything, but it's helped articulate to businesses the business continuity impacts from a cyber exploitation. Because, you know, for a long time, the idea of a cyber attack was somebody's going to come in and steal your data. You know, there's a confidential impact of confidentiality and businesses would kind of get it and they know they had to protect intellectual property, but it sometimes wasn't always hit home to them what that meant. And ultimately, businesses more and more automated. They ended up bring on board more computers and trying to push ever harder for efficiency savings. So they would run quicker, move faster, do more with less, automate more. And it suddenly made them incredibly fragile. So the fact there was a security guy standing up saying, you do realize that if somebody does something here, we're going to have a really bad time. You've turned what used to be a tiny issue and an annoyance, uh, a costly one, but still an annoyance into something which is now a business ending impact. And people are like, yeah, whatever. Anyway, we need to buy the next generation technology and automate <laughs> more. And like, okay. And this has exposed the fact that businesses are now so interconnected and so reliant yeah. on their technology that when something goes wrong, the outsized impacts are huge. Yeah. I mean, just look at uh, what happened with the colonial pipeline, yeah. you know, and that ransomware attack. Like, you know, it it puts security professionals into a bad situation, right? Because we understand that one, if they didn't recover from that that attack quickly enough, they would absolutely have to pay whatever the ransom was. 
just to keep their company alive, literally just to keep their company afloat and existing on Tuesday, they would have to either, you know, completely recover or pay the ransom. And, you know, as soon as it was announced that that attack happened and it was underway, right? Everyone in security was like, Ooh, I wonder what the mean time of recovery is because that's how much time they have. (laughs) Exactly. And they, um, and they didn't always appreciate the interconnectedness of their systems. Um, and so, you know, their business is moving oil products through pipes, you know, put it in one end and it goes out the other end. And they're all about logistics, timing, what type of petrol or, or oil crude level goes in at one end and where it pops out the other. And if they didn't know who to bill, they didn't know what the schedule is to go in, even though the OT systems were segmented, you know, segregated, they, you know, the ransomware didn't get onto their OT systems. Fundamentally, the OT system couldn't do their job because they didn't know where and when and how to bill and all the other mission support systems. There's a reason why we, you know, in the military, you call them mission support. If they go down, so does the mission because one can't happen without the other. And I think businesses didn't realize the interconnectedness, interdependency of systems. And now it's really bringing home to roost the fact that it's not just enough to do the same standard, what I call cyber hygiene. Well, it's an interesting term. Do cyber hygiene, again, you constantly do the same things over and over. If you're constantly patching, you're constantly scanning. If if last week was the same as this week and is going to be the same as next week, you're probably not doing the right things from a security perspective because you need to step back and ask yourself, what are my biggest risks? What are my business ending, you know, events, uh, um, high consequence events, you know, biggest feared impacts, right? How, what is the, how do those occur? What are the commonalities? Where are my interdependencies from a business perspective as well as from a cyber perspective? Now, where's my biggest risk reduction exercise? And if you just mm. keep telling yourself, don't worry, I'm just doing the same things again and again. So I should be fine because I, you know, it's like doing a rain dance almost. As long as I keep twirling around, twiddling my thumbs in just a certain way, I should be fine. I'm like, well, maybe, but I'd say you're doing, that's more just, you know, um, that's more just something you're doing to help make yourself feel better rather than actually contributing to the outcome. Yeah, I totally agree. So. So as someone that's an expert, you know, in, in the well, field, expert will push it a bit. I, I've been in the industry a while, put it that way. <laughs> well, you know, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into the industry, what your journey was like getting in, getting into cybersecurity, you know, and maybe what even piques your interest, what keeps you going? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So I like pretty much all you know, um, cybersecurity people of a certain age, nobody intended to get into this field. You kind of always fell into it backwards and grew up while (laughs) it grew up. Um, So I started, I've always loved computers. My dad uh, was big into computers. And so I grew up always fascinated by how they worked. And so a time I went through to university and really loved always trying to just understand at the next level, how does this work? How does this work? Um, And then love puzzle solving. So I got a job um, working for a um, 
medium-sized sort of UK defense contractor um, and would be part of making things work uh, on their um, UAV uh, product line and their radio product line. Um, and then they started to need somebody who knew a little bit more about cybersecurity because um, they saw that as a massive growth industry. Um, and so I kind of said, put my hand up and said, hey, I like cybersecurity. I like hacking. And, you know, I understand a lot of this stuff, but I have not really done it professionally and kind of fell into doing it. And then over time, started doing a bit more and a bit more. And then um, I found myself uh, very quickly part of a aviation standards group. Um, hmm. Originally, it was called aviation system security. And my boss thought it meant well, that's obviously physical security systems for aircraft. So like CCTV on aircraft, trying to understand what's happening. You know, uh, This is after 9-11. They want to understand, all right, if an aircraft's in flight, what the heck is going on up there? Um, so I joined it, but very quickly found out that it actually meant, no, no, can you provide cybersecurity for aviation systems? And so I thought, this is fantastic. This is absolutely fascinating. Trying to understand how do you design in security into an aircraft? And so over time, just from then, I basically, um, my key to anybody wanting to get into this field is just don't say no, just try lots of things, keep bouncing around, don't stay in any one thing or any one topic too long, just be open to the idea of change. Because after a while, uh, suddenly you start building up a sufficient knowledge that you know a little bit about quite a lot, and then you can become useful in lots of different scenarios. So I, you know, I don't know what you find, Joe, but um, in any sort of cybersecurity, either exercise to try and understand how things can go wrong, or that remediation part of trying to understand, well, how did they go wrong and how are we meant to recover? The more you know about lots of different systems, the more helpful you can be, the more you can understand and you can appreciate what things are connected. You can see the connections. But if you're only ever stuck in stuck in sort of one part of the business, one part of the industry, you don't have that breadth of knowledge that's really going to be useful to really um, solve the puzzle. Wow! Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You, you know, it's uh, I think you touched on on two major areas, right? Learning learning to look for the unlikely issue or area or, or thing, right? Because that will lead you. I mean, that's, that's, that's where the attackers are looking, you know, that's what they want. And, you know, also not being afraid to get experience or gain a skill set in a domain or a different area of cybersecurity than what you're normally used to. What, what I've personally find a lot of the times is that, you know, people coming up in, in cybersecurity nowadays, they, they, they don't really care about all of the other, you know, topics or areas or domains that are outside of their main interests. And um, <laughs> it really, it really pigeonholes them. And you're only, you're only putting yourself at a disadvantage because you're not going to be faced with the same problems every single day in cybersecurity. Every day there's a new problem. There's a new thing that you have to work around or, you know, prevent and things like that. And so having the experience in those different domains and different areas, um, even if it's not a lot of experience, right? Like it's yeah. still something, it still gives you that base knowledge to build off of and, you know, but do your job better. Absolutely. And I, I definitely, 
uh, my sort of career advice when I mentor people is, you know, well, I, I can only base it really on my own personal experience is um, my career has been a little bit exponential where I noticed I would bounce around and it seemed that other people got further than me in their career quicker. I seem to have more of a slower start, but by bouncing around and doing different things, at some point, I became super useful. And it's at that point that, you know, things start to do happen pretty quickly. And then suddenly I found I was more useful and suddenly getting on the more, much more interesting projects. And my career started to expand quite a bit because I had just that breadth where other people had been so focused on getting ahead that they found, oops, I'm now really deep and not very broad which can only get you into, especially right. in big companies, only ever get you into sort of dead man shoes. The only way you can ever you know, succeed is, oh, okay, well, wait until the person above me leaves. Whereas if you have a bit more breadth, well, you can bounce around anywhere. You suddenly, there's so much more opportunities available to you. And as you point out, you, you're that much more useful because you understand all the different aspects of how they get in. There's that, you know, um, same thing with attackers. There's a return on investment that they put in uh, to attacking anything. So they don't want to do the same things that is just not going to work. They want to move to where there's um, highest, you know, uh, it's the most fertile fields. And I always think the sort of a great analogy of that was always um, Hollywood movies. You know, why the heck did Deep Impact and Armageddon come out at the same time? Why is there suddenly <laughs> all these superhero movies? Why is there sport, you know, um, spy movie suddenly popular one year and it, just because at some point in that zeitgeist everybody started thinking the same way and it just generated the same content and attackers are no different we suddenly start looking in a certain area because that seems quite fruitful and suddenly there's a flock of people all looking and exploiting that and over time the industry responds gets better and the threat starts moving somewhere else because there's another fertile field so if you can't move at the same speed as the attackers are moving and look for that and adapt. Well, you're going to be left behind solving what was last year's problem. And guess what? Computers are going to start taking over your job because they'll be able to do that routine elements more efficiently, more you know, um, comprehensively than a human can. So you still need to do what humans do best, which is really finding the novel, doing something different, you know, and that's why I say I love bringing together machine learning and humans together because combined, you can do so much more. Um, I'm a bit of an Apple fanboy. Um, don't hold that against me, but me too. Um, I grew up with an I grew up with an Apple. Um, so you know, from the early '80s. Um, so I loved listening to sort of Steve Jobs quotes, but he had one, and he called it um, a computer as a bicycle for the mind because. Together, you can just go so much further, so much faster. You can do more if you combine a human with a machine. And it's the same thing, I think, with cybersecurity. You can't buy a single uh, product or solution. There's no silver bullet. There's no magic amulet uh, to solve this problem. What you have to do is you have to do a variety of things and you have to you know, I constantly ask yourself, where is things going to go wrong? Find the right sort of tool and combine that human um, and machine together to really allow you to go further and faster. But a machine, you know, bicycle on its own isn't going to get very far. Yeah. I think the best way to do that is to get the, the experience and the familiarity with the different domains, you know, and um, yeah. I, it's so valuable 
you know, and I've come across people in my career at, at other uh, companies that, you know, when I talk to them, it's like, okay, so what's your, you know, experience in cybersecurity? Oh, I've done CyberArk for like the existence of CyberArk. That's all yeah, I've done. I've deployed tools. All I know is this. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's funny because it's like CyberArk falls within IAM, right? Yep. And so as soon as you start asking them about other, even just IAM tools, they have oh, no clue. Yeah. Or what's no the difference clue. between privileged you know, access management and just a regular identity access management? Not a. It blows a my mind. It, it, yeah. It blows my mind. Like those, in my opinion, those kind of people that just never go past, you know, that one tool, that one domain, they won't last in security. And if they do last, they're going to be tied down to a job that has a specific tool or technology and if anything ever changes, their career is at risk. It, yeah. it truly is, you know. Like, oh, <laughs> well, man, they become ba- they become babysitters for the machine, not yeah. the masters, and you let the machine drive them, you know. And I, I think it's that way of thinking about it. Um, and they typically have this like mystical, um, this mystical thought around the work that they do. It's like, oh, no one else can do this job. This is such a custom deployment. No one else will know what we have going on. And I've like, they've, you know, those same people, they have told me like, you know, you're probably never going to understand what's going on in this environment. That's okay. You know, you just got to work with it every day and, and this and that. Right. And when those people that told me that left the company eventually, I was able to literally see like, oh, so everything that literally everyone knows in this company about this system or this environment is literally 100% of what's going on. Yeah. Because you keep on telling people, oh, that's just a small fraction. No, that isn't just 20% what you've been telling everyone. That is 100%. So your job was a little bit less um, needed than you projected. <laughs> And yeah. it, you know, it puts the company at a disadvantage because then the company is in a position where they think that they need to hold on to this person no matter what, because the the company will go down, right? Yeah, I you're right. And I think people can look at a sort of um, imposter syndrome as mm-hmm. either being a strength or a weakness. Um, and I think once I realized that, hey, Everybody has imposter syndrome. At some point, everybody feels, oh God, I'm inadequate. There's no way I know what I'm talking about. Somebody else, somebody's going to find out, uh, mm. you know, and call me out. And you realize, hang about, everybody's in the same boat. So I can either be intimidated by other people or I can accept the fact that, hey, we're all in this boat. Everybody has things that they know about and are better at. And you, you know, um, use that to your advantage. I always think my hiring policy when I try and bring anybody on board is I'm trying to always hire my replacement. I want mm. them to do my job because that frees me up to do something different. There are some aspects of my job I love and there are some aspects of my job I find tedious and boring. So I would absolutely, you know, fight, hire somebody else in who's better at it than me and then guess I'll find something else. I'll always move on and do something, you know, different. So the hiring the right team and not being intimidated 
by or threatened by other people, I think is really valuable. Um, and it's part of the reason why I, you know, so, so, uh, decided to help support and, you know, be a director of, of Turgensec is the two co-founders. Um, it was massively impressive. I tried to start at my own company out of university um, and I, I did okay, but I did not have, I had to be honest, I did not have the startup drive and I thought I did. And then, you know, whole load of years later, looking back and now meeting up with uh, Nat and Peter, who are the co-founders of Turgensec, they have the drive. I mean, they absolutely plugged in doing stuff. And I suddenly feel like, oh my God, I'm an old man. Sometimes I, I, <laughs> I sit down and chat to Peter and I go, I've kept up with you about 50, 60%, but there was a good 40% of that that went over my head. Oh my God, I don't understand what he's doing. And I can either be intimidated by that and try and bluff my way along or just be impressed and go, that is so awesome and neat and continue to keep running at that speed because what you create is so much better. And you can bring something else to the party. You don't have to try and compete with everybody head on. Yeah, I think if you can be honest with yourself and with others, like, hey, maybe this is an area that I'm lacking. Right. Like, you know, for myself, I'm I have no formal education in, in business or anything with business. Right. Like I don't really have friends that are I, I don't have, you know, friends that do startups. I, I Nothing. Right. So me doing a, a startup or even just starting this podcast, I mean, it's it's difficult. It's a challenge. I have no clue what I'm doing. Zero, none. <laughs> so if someone comes along and tells me like, Hey, you're doing this wrong. You know what? You're probably right. <laughs> let me, let, let me figure it you. out. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, but what you're doing is you're, you're doing something you enjoy. And the number of times you think somebody must have solved this problem and you're wrong. Yeah. Guess what? Nobody has solved that problem. Everybody's been muddling along in the same way. And so I always think it's fascinating every so often just to step back and just be impressed with yourself and be impressed with the fact that, hey, look, I'm a functioning adult because most of the time I think, oh my God, somebody's <laughs> going to find out. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, yay, I put my trousers on. Just be happy with the small things. <laughs> just, just adulting is hard. Man, no kidding. <laughs> I wish, you know, I, I wish I would have realized this in, in high school and in college, because I would have, I mean, if, if I would have realized this in college, I would have partied so much more and I partied <laughs> a whole lot. I, I, I would have focused on that rather than, you know, all this other stuff like, you know, criminal justice classes that now I'm not using at all. You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm not using it, but it's good knowledge, you know, but it's like, I'm not doing anything with law enforcement. You know, if I was, maybe if I was pen testing for the government or something like that, right. Maybe it would come into play, but, oh, I, I should have taken like a business course. Yeah. <laughs> that probably would have helped me more at this point. Well, it was fascinating because I mean, yeah, I, when I was at university, we did do one entrepreneurship course. And so they hmm. taught us how to do things like write a business plan. And, they, you know, we ended up doing that and won a competition for, you know, the best student business plan you know, in London that year. And that was brilliant. Loved it. Thought, okay, I can turn that into a company. What they didn't teach you was actually how to raise money to, you know, to fund yeah. a company. They, they told you the sort of the basics of how to do it, but not actually how to raise money how to fund yeah. the company. 
And that's normally the first thing. It's just, right, no money, no business. Um, yeah. So it's been brilliant later on in my career going back and working with a startup and turn it into a successful business. And then, yeah, asking yourself, wait a minute, you know, this, this problem, which I thought had been solved, there's so much better ways of doing it and you're getting so much value. And then it's that scary bit of then trying to go and convince other customers, hey, do you want to buy our product? Because you feel, you know, I was an engineer all of my career. So how the hell, you know, I hated salespeople come up and trying to sell me stuff. So now oh, I man. know being the engineer on the other end of that. So the idea of me then going up and trying to sell to somebody else, I'm always like, oh, oh, am I coming across as that horrible, sleazy salesperson who my entire career, I kept wanting to get off the phone. But I realized it's about, am I solving their problem? Because as you were pointing out with the cyber, if I'm just hawking another product, which is the same as everything else, I'm not adding value. Then 100%, that engineer is going to tell me to go jump off a cliff or quietly ignore my call and go, oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll get back to you, whatever. But it wasn't until we realized, you know, you you have to articulate what you're doing that's different or beneficial to the company that suddenly went, oh, actually, this is this is pretty easy. And they enjoyed talking to us because you enjoy solving their problem. And I realized, oh, it's no different than if I was an employee of their own company. I'm coming to them with an idea and saying, hey, I think I can solve a problem here. I think I can help you. That suddenly it becomes a lot easier. You know, I... I, I, man, I, I completely relate to everything that you just said, especially with, you know, like salespeople reaching out and everything. And I, I'm bombarded every single day with sales pitches, people wanting to connect just to sell me something. And I mean, it gets tiring, it's exhausting. And so at the end of the day, I always just, you know, brush it off. I don't respond, I don't give them any attention, right? Internet advertising. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I think I think especially in in sales and definitely in, in cybersecurity like company sales, you have to stand out to the engineer because the engineer is pitch tools constantly and they're working with tools constantly. And so they know this technology sometimes better than the than than the vendor, you know? Um and so things that other people have done that have helped them stand out that have, have actually gotten them a phone call with me like immediately is when they send me a video message, right? Like, and the video message isn't starting off with selling me anything like, Hey, I want to take you out for drinks. I want to get to know you at the end of it. If you want to learn more about the product, cool. If not, I don't care because I wanted to get to know you better. Right. Like, and I've actually formed, you know, real friendships with people over that because those people were more interested in literally just learning about Joe as the person than, Hey, Joe's a dollar, right? Like Joe's a dollar amount (laughs) and we're going to spend this two grand on a dinner. And we expect him to sign a PO for 120,000. It's like, well, I can't sign anything. I'm just an engineer. So if you want to go out and have a good time, great. If you only want to sell me something, kick rocks. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think um, my trick was always uh, just turning around and asking somebody, you know, asking the vendor, are you passionate about what you're selling? 
is, is mm. what you're selling actually, you know, what makes you so excited by it? I mean, I've got a day job, for instance. So I work, you know, the 40 hours a week for uh, a good job with a uh, European defense contractor. Um, and this is, you know, sporting tourism stuff. I do weekends, nights. This is a second job and it's killing. Right. But it is so enjoyable and I so believe in it and I'm really passionate about it. So I think that's what I would say is, you know, if I find a vendor comes across and they try and sell me something and I talk to the sales guy and say, okay, really, what's the differentiator here? Why? Why this and not your direct competitor? And if right. they come out with basically saying, well, mine comes in blue, I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks. You know, you, you're just solving this. It's a better mousetrap. I, I can't, I, that's why I hate being sold a better mousetrap because mm-hmm. I already got a mousetrap. And you know what? The mice aren't that big a deal. I have other problems. I have raccoons. So a mousetrap isn't helping me with freaking raccoons. Right. Right. Yeah. So yes, yeah, learn about you. Go talk. What's Joe? What's your problems? <laughs> what vermin is getting into your house? Because otherwise, cool. Let me just, if I don't know you and I don't know what your needs are, then I'm not going to know. Oh, wait a minute. It's, it's raccoons. It's not mice. Therefore, you know what? I can't really help you much here. But let's keep in touch. You know, you seem like a cool guy. You know, we'll be friends. Right. I think one interesting or really good area that vendors miss probably 99% of the time that I have to really pull out of them is, okay, let's say I'm tired of this product. I don't like it. Something happens, right? Contract ends. I want to rip it out. How difficult is it for me to rip your tool out of my environment? Because, you know, there's there's two extremes, right? There's one extreme where we could name a couple companies where it's like, oh, no, I have to rip this thing out. This is turned into a five-year project. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, there's one where it's like, hey, this is five hours because I have to script it out, deploy it on this domain controller, and we're good, you know? And the vendors that... So one, I, I think that there might be only one vendor that has ever openly just told me like, you know, this is how you rip it out. And all of the other ones that I've had to ask for, like I'm asking several people, I'm asking previous companies and things like <laughs> that, you know, because as an experienced security professional, that's a, that's a huge risk. You know, that, that, that really is what happens when we're unhappy with your service. What happens when we no longer want to do business with you? God forbid that happens, but look, you got to live in the present, right? That might happen. (laughs) Absolutely. And I, so I've been blessed a little bit to work in the critical uh, national infrastructure and the, uh, we call operational technology OT domain uh, for a lot of my career. Um, And there you, you know, when you turn up on site and you want to integrate something, you've got to have an installation integration plan. You've also got to have a backout plan because yeah. if you're integrating and if it starts to go wrong, they want to know, right, how do I most efficiently take this out because production needs to continue. So it's the same thing. I bet every you know vendor provides you with that installation and integration guide. You say, awesome, where's my backout guide. And if you don't have a backout guide, well, why the heck should I follow part one? I have no way of getting myself out of this. 
Yeah, I I used to do work with a uh, a federal agency here in America, and you know I I had flown out and gone to their site several times, and uh, one week you know they paid all this money just for me to fly out, and all that we did was documentation for the entire week, and you know they wanted not just an install guide, they wanted a troubleshooting guide, an upgrade guide a backout guide like what if we need to rip this out of our environment how do we do it without bringing down our phone systems for instance mm-hmm. you know and man it was hundreds of pages long it was something that my own company had never done before and i'm sitting there with a guy you know that <laughs> that is just a guy that knows a phone system within this federal agency and that's all that he knows and it's just oh man it but that's it was security. so you got to know when yeah. something goes wrong, what do I do? And if you haven't prepared, if you right. don't have a remediation policy, well, you, do, you don't have security. You have a, you, you have a, I will know how to fail guide. Um, I always love it. It's yeah. kind of like a sock when people, you know, there's a current very, I mean, it's a legitimate desire to monitor, have security operation centers, to be able to monitor your infrastructure better. You 100% need to do that. but you need to do, you know, you need to have a plan in place for what happens if you detect something. Otherwise, I like to describe it as cool. I can, instead of me missing how somebody attacked me, I can now see in high definition how they're attacking me. <laughs> still watching yeah. the car crash happen and still watching the thing going wrong. Only now I can see it in high def. And like, wonderful. How about you actually put in place those? Um, response remediation proactive security elements you start using threat intelligence to and i hate to use this sort of um hockey you know u.s hockey term for those international things but you meant to skate to where the puck is gonna be you don't skate to where the puck is and that's the you know same thing with security if you see that threat intelligence and that you know threat moving you need to be proactive about reallocating resources not just getting more efficient at looking at it reacting to the same things you were last week yeah that's really interesting i don't know if you uh read the article that came out maybe maybe a month ago about the rsa breach back in 2011 and the one thing that i found extraordinarily just fascinating is that RSA, they were actually extremely secured, like at least from the article that I read and what it sounded like to me, they were very well, you know, set up and secured and whatnot. And while the attack was happening, like literally while it was going on, their top, you know, engineer or whatever you want to call them was actually, you know, just a few steps or a few paces uh, behind the actual attackers. And I, I found that to be very fascinating because every time when you hear about these breaches and these different attacks, you know, it's, it's months after it actually happens. It's like, oh yeah, they've been in our system for three, four months and we're just finding out, finding out right now. But RSA was the, the, like the total opposite. It was like, yeah, they've been in our system for 30 minutes. And we're like, you know, two minutes behind them. <laughs> I mean, you never, you never see that. Yeah, that's true. But I, I have read the same article and I, you know, maybe it's just a skeptic in me, but um, 
I'm sure you're the same, Joe. When you, whenever you watch a movie and you see somebody hacking, the definition of a good yeah. hacker is somebody who types quickly, and it drives me nuts because I'm like, I, I can type touch type as well, and the number of mistakes I make are appalling. <laughs> And computers yeah. don't like mistakes. <laughs> so the whole <laughs> idea of, well, what an attack is very quick. An attacker gets in, they immediately know exactly where they're going to pivot, how, what credentials to use, move laterally, head directly to the target, get what they need and get out. Is crazy. It's, it's impossible to believe. So what that says to me is somebody knew a heck of a, you know, their, their enumeration, their ground game before right. carrying out that exploitation, that final bit, um, was immense. Uh, right. They knew what they were doing. So you're right, that that attack may have been 30 minutes in let duration. So, gotcha. You gotta the wonder attack how long itself, were they there? Yeah. Or what, yeah. who, who was helping them? That is a very good point. I think they even said in the article that I think the day after the attack was, you know, kind of made public that the FBI was on site re-interviewing all of their staff, rerunning background checks and everything. I mean, that's that's absolutely the right move because when you have such a secure entity, it really limits your attack surface dramatically. Now it turns into which third party you know, allowed this to happen, which insider threat allowed this to happen. Well, you've got to ask yourself also, why the heck was their seed table, you know, a seed for all of their things live, uh, you know, connected? And they said, well, we need to do it in order to help batch processing and et cetera. Like, well, surely you should have had a better process in place to slowly, you know, limit your attack surface, limit the amount of data you're exposing. You should only pull out and make available online some elements and have a process to do it. No, don't just leave the entire thing open because <laughs> that's nuts. But it goes back to that expectation of security and what's the reality of an attacker getting in. And frankly, this sort of the business impact. I don't think even the architects of the system, you know, and they had a, must have had a good idea of, oh, if somebody steals these, yeah, it's going to be a big deal. But I don't think they really thought about the fundamental business impact, share impact price, and the people who architect that system. I bet you that they were not empowered to ex- to accept that type of risk to their share price that they took. But that's what happens right. in architecture. Somehow, some technologist, an enterprise architect, somebody's made a design choice and basically said, yeah, that's sufficient. And they've basically accepted risk on behalf of the company that if the senior risk owners ever found out about, they're like, who the heck empowered you to make that kind of choice? Oh my God. But we let it happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we, we have talked about some really good stuff in this episode. I feel like I need you back on like tomorrow to keep the conversation going. I mean, it's such a good conversation. So Alex, you know, if you had to give one piece of advice to my audience, think about it like this. You know, I have a lot of people that are trying to get into security right now. What's one piece of advice that you would give them, uh, you know, to help them have a more successful career in cybersecurity? Um, Two things. One, learn all the things. 
um, just be, uh, don't be afraid to play around. I mean, one of the first questions I ask anybody uh, before hiring them is, I, I'm not that fussed about what career path you've taken, what certifications you have, what are you doing? I always kind of just ask them, you know, what's your home internet setup like? Do you, you know, do you have a pie hole? Do you, have you downloaded and you play around with Raspberry Pis and what does, you know, do you drive your partner nuts because you've <laughs> added intrusion detection systems to your own internal, you know, have you played around? Are you passionate? Because if you're passionate and you've done that stuff, brilliant. You know, I'll hire you over somebody with a, some sort of certification any day of the week, uh, because you can always learn skills on the job. What I can't teach is passion. I can't teach inquisitiveness. And that's the attribute. That's the behavior I'm always looking for. Um, and then I suppose the second thing um, is just to, you know, enjoy what you're doing. You've got to be, you, you know, if you want to get into cybersecurity, really think about it and say, is that, do I enjoy solving puzzles? Because if you do, brilliant, you're going to have a great time. If you want to just carry on doing the same thing again and again, it's probably not the right sort of field for you. Which comes back to that that sort of passion awesome i totally agree so alex you know i really appreciate you coming on if you don't mind you know can you tell my audience where they can find you know maybe you or more information on your company sure so yeah i think alex tartar luckily it's a unusualish name so you can find me on linkedin um otherwise turgensec um com. So on turgosec.com, you can find more information about our attack surface management, the way we uh, pull together machine learning, human collaboration to solve your attack surface management and your supply chain cybersecurity, which we never got into. So I'll have to come back and talk about that. Um, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. You can reach me, find me most places um, as Alex Tarter. Awesome. Well, thank you, Alex. We will, we will absolutely have you back. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for coming on.